Revelation 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As you sit down, keep Revelation 3 right in front of you there. If you need a Bible, there's one uh, somewhere nearby you and a seat in front of you. And uh, if you're newer to the Bible, we're in a study in the, f- the very last book in that Bible. So flip to the back, uh, Revelation chapter 3. And now, hey, if you grew up in Indiana, at different uh, points in your education journey, you probably had some segments on Indiana history where you looked at uh, what are some of the, the, the striking things that happened in our state or uh, what are some of the things that went into form Forming who our state, uh, who our state is, and who we are as a group of Hoosiers. Now, uh, in a similar way, if you would have grown up in this city called Sardis, and so we're now uh, inland in this area of the world, we've been looking at these letters in uh, Sardis is a, a town south of Thyatira, and if you would have grown up in this town, um, there would have been some very distinct pieces of history that would have shaped. Uh, how the people of Sardis thought and how they operated. And, and, and here, um, here's what shaped them the most. When, when Sardis was founded, it was built to be an impenetrable, unconquerable city. And so if you look at this picture, Sardis was situated on top of this, this beautiful hill and you kind of had steep ravines on all sides. And then as they built the city there, they built this wall that was to be impenetrable and, and unconquerable. Um, what do you think happened? They got conquered. Not just once in their history, but twice in their history. And it wasn't because of how they situated the city, or it wasn't because a a faulty part of the wall. Actually, in both instances, why Sardis was conquered was due to a lack of watchfulness by the watchmen on the wall. And so if you grew up in Sardis, you heard these stories over and over and over again. And in kind of the driving theme of what you would have learned is like, may we, may we never be found to be unwatchful again. Now, it seems that's the theme Jesus is picking up on here as he writes this letter. It says, um, to the angel of the church in Sardis. And in these, uh, these, the content of this letter that Olivia read for us, um, it brings out a bit of this watchfulness. But what Jesus is going after is not watchfulness of watchmen standing on a wall. It's a, it's a lack of spiritual watchfulness. watchfulness. It's, a, it's a fact that they have fallen asleep spiritually, but it's worse than that. They, it's not just that they've fallen asleep. Um, it's that they're, on, they're a congregation on spiritual life support. And so Jesus is going to call them out in this, but he addresses himself or he identifies himself to the church in Sardis in this way. It says, the words of him 
who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now again, just like in all these other letters, this isn't the first time we are coming across these phrases. In Revelation chapter 1, as, as, as John describes this full revelation of the Son of Man that he sees, we come across this reference to uh, the seven spirits. Now, if you'll remember, it was all the way back to week one of this series, I argued that when we come across the phrase seven spirits in Revelation, it is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Seven spirits equals Holy Spirit. And now you, 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 you kind of go, well, how, is that true? How do we know that? It seems that what John is doing and what John's recording is a reference back to how the Holy Spirit is described in Zechariah chapter 4 with a sevenfold ministry. And so the seven spirits refers to the Holy Spirit. And if you want more reading on that, I would commend this article to you. Who are the seven spirits in Revelation? Uh, a guy named Brandon Smith wrote an article uh, on the Gospel Coalition website. It's a great one. I would commend that to you for further reading. But not only is he the one who has the seven spirits of God, but it says he has the seven stars. Uh, Revelation chapter 1 told us definitively what the seven stars are. They are the angels of the seven churches. And so Jesus addresses the church in Sardis as the one who has the spirit and as the one who is Lord over the angels of the churches. The church is Christ's church and he has something to say. Now, We've seen most of these letters start with something Jesus commends the church for. Jesus compliments them for, not Sardis. Jesus has nothing to commend them for. He jumps right into it with some hard and heavy truths that Sardis needs to hear. And he calls out immediately their spiritual deadness. And today is all about this. Christ gives a wake-up call of spiritual life for the church on spiritual life support. Now, you might hear and go, wow, there's nothing to commend this church for. This is going to be a super, super heavy sermon. And in parts, it will be. But a letter that starts with a prevailing theme of deadness is going to end with a beautiful description of life. And I just want us to, I just want us to acknowledge up front that it's only Jesus Christ, the Lord of life, who conquered death, who can address a group of people in spiritual deadness and by the end have us rejoicing over this beautiful picture of eternal life. You with me on that? Like how many of us are sitting here who were once dead and now we're worshiping over all these songs we've just been singing full of spiritual life? Only Jesus can do that. And so by the end of this, we're going to get this beautiful description of to those who conquer the life that is theirs in Jesus Christ. But we got to journey through what Jesus calls out, this spiritual deadness Jesus calls out before we get there. Let's pray and ask for God's help to that end. Father, Lord, help us. We need to hear from you. We want your word to go out. We want it to go out clearly. We want it to go out accurately. God, we ask that your spirit would do a great work as your word goes forth. God, meet with us here. Speak to our hearts through your word. We pray and we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. This letter begins. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are what? I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. 
First thing, write it down. It's possible to look alive outwardly and be dead inwardly. I don't want us to move too quickly over this phrase, you have the reputation of being alive. That's really scary. You, you with me on that? That's really scary. I'm sitting on the other side of that wall this week in a you know, study area we have, and I'm just sitting in a chair going, wow, that is, Brock, that is really scary. This reality that you can, we could have a reputation of being alive, and yet, as Jesus looks down and gives the autopsy, he stamps dead on it. Now, what is this all about? How, how does this happen? Um, Jesus, in his earthly ministry, he, he actually lovingly would confront a group of people on this fairly often. He looked at a group of Pharisees and he said, you Pharisees, see if you can help me with this. You're like whitewashed, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look super spiritually good on the outside and you're full of dead bones on the inside. You have this reputation of being vibrantly alive, but you are spiritually dead. Now, I want us to understand something. Jesus didn't look to like a group of spiritual misfits and that these were the religious leaders. These were the people who the rest of the people would look to and say, man, they're setting the spiritual pace. And Jesus says, you have this reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You're a whitewashed, beautiful on the outside tomb, dead on the inside. Jesus loves really, quote unquote, religious people so much that when he sees that it's not a religion that is of him, but rather outward rituals and outward religiosity, he loves them so much that he'll call them out at the heart level. And that's what he's done here. Now, how does this happen? How do we as God's people or, or how do a group of people or how does a church develop a reputation of being alive but yet be dead. One of my favorite quotes by Tim Keller, Tim Keller was a pastor in New York City, and one of my favorite quotes that he says is this, some of us rebel against God by being really bad. Others of us rebel against God by being really good. Why I probably like that quote so much is because I've rebelled against God in both of those. What does this mean? I mean, some of you, you read that quote and you go, how do you rebel against God by being really good? I thought that was the point. What it means is you could be a model of morality. I mean, your whole life, teachers could have looked at you and patted you on the head and said, with class, coaches patted you on the head and said, I wish my kids were like you. You could, you could live a life and be the model of morality. You could be a model of morality in your workplace and among your peers. You could be such a principled man or a principled woman. I mean, it could be true that you don't drink, cuss, smoke, or chew, or hang with anyone that do. And yet, if you are looking to your moral spotlessness to get you right standing with a holy creator God, you are dead wrong. 
If we are looking to our moral upright spotlessness to make us right with a holy God, we're dead wrong. It's not the gospel. It's antithetical to the gospel, and that's what Tim Keller is calling out here. It's actually rebellion against God to think that we can be good enough, that we could possibly be good enough to work our way, to earn our way, to, to stand before a holy God one day and him say, good job, you did it. You were good enough. It's impossible, and it's not the gospel. What we don't need is a reputation of spiritual life, an outwardly squeaky cleanness that is not driven by a gospel-given life that comes from the inside out. Jesus wants our heart. He's after our heart. He's always after our heart. And it is so easy for people to fall into this, this religious ritualism that is not driven by a gospel-changed heart. And it's how people, we, can develop a reputation of having spiritual life and yet be spiritually dead. Now, this isn't only true on uh, an individual basis as God's people. It's true on a church scale. This is what Jesus is calling out here in this congregation, that it's possible for us to do all the things as a church and have the classes and have the groups and, and come and sing songs and, 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 and preach messages. It's possible to do all the things and yet inside not have a gospel-changed heart that produces the spiritual life that God is after. Now listen. We have to always come back to this gospel reality that the only place spiritual life comes from is a relationship with the life giver, Jesus Christ. It's everything our worship team was already shepherding us through. The only way spiritual life comes is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's it. That's how we come to have life. And that's how life, spiritual life, gets produced and played out in our life. If we choose the alternative, if we choose to try to live out a spirituality apart from the life-giving power of the gospel, it is exhausting. And after three and a half hours, you'll blow it. Man, I'm doing great, I'm doing great, I'm doing great. Up, oh, blew it. There's no power in that. There's no power in that. So, Jesus says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, here's a good question. What's the hope for a church declared dead by Jesus? Oh, really? Like, what's the hope for that? The hope is in a Savior who resurrects things from the dead. The hope is in a Savior who knows exactly how to give this congregation spiritual CPR. If we were going to, you know, if, if after the service I said, hey, as the service ends across the hall, we have some CPR training. Go into this room. You're going to get trained how to, how to do CPR. We'd walk in, there'd be an instructor up there, and that instructor would start to give us instructions. Do this, do this, do this, do this. It's exactly what Jesus does here. 
Second thing, write it down. Jesus gives spiritual CPR to a dead or dying church. And the way he gives this spiritual CPR is through a series of five quick-hitting imperatives. Five quick-hitting commands. Sardis, you know what you need to do? You need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. What does he say here? Let's see if we can pick out the five commands he gives for spiritual CPR to a dead church. Verse 2, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. There's in, the, in what I just read, there are five commands to give this. To, Jesus is literally giving this church spiritual CPR. Sardis, here's what you need to do. What are the five commands of spiritual CPR he gives? Verse 2, what are the first two words? Wake up. Now, now say it like Jesus is saying it to them. Wake up. Wake up. Yeah, this isn't, the, 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 you know, this isn't your, your leisurely Saturday morning when you don't have anywhere to be or anything to do. Wake up. Where you linger in bed, you yawn, you stretch, you just kind of lay there. This is not that. This is a call from Jesus. This is the kind of wake-up call you get, loud bang in the middle of the night, adrenaline immediately running through your veins. You with me? A lot of times, Eric will nudge me in the middle of the night. Did you hear that? I'll say, furnace. <laughs> Did you hear that? No. <laughs> a couple years ago, um, our, our now four-year-old was just a little baby. Um, middle of the night, boom! And I didn't need the nudge from there. I'm out of the bed. I'm sprinting out the doorway. I'm, I'm to the stairs. And as I'm halfway down the stairs, I'm like, all this guy is going to get met with is a mediocre set of skills learned in high school wrestling. <laughs> and I turn the corner, and I'm in the middle of the living room, and I'm looking around. And it's nothing, quiet. And I'm like, what in the world? And I'm sweeping every corner with the best high school wrestling stance I remember. <laughs> And all of a sudden, from upstairs, I hear Eric, Brock! And I'm like, how do you get upstairs? And I'm going upstairs. <laughs> and I come into our nursery. I come into our nursery, and we had hung a really heavy wooden sign directly above our son's crib. Don't hang a really heavy wooden sign in front of your kid's crib. What had happened, praise God, one of the brackets broke. It swung to the side, put a hole in the other wall, and fell to the ground. That long, way too detailed story to say, the kind of wake-up call Jesus has given here <laughs> is a boom, adrenaline rushing, let's go, wake up. And church, listen to me now, I love you, love you. Some of us in the room today need the adrenaline-filled spiritual wake-up call. Wake up. May the Spirit of God work in our hearts right now. Wake up. You're drowsy. Wake up. You've grown comfortable with a faith that's on life support. Wake up. He wants so much more. Now, I get it. If, if that's you, and you're, if you're in that place, you're like, okay, thanks. If I could just wake up and snap out of it, like I'd love to do that. I didn't come to church for you to just tell me to wake up. 
But, but that's not all Jesus says. He gives them a wake-up plan. He gives them a, a plan to see blood flowing back through their veins. Wake up. And then here's the second imperative he gives. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Well, I thought the congregation was dead. Yeah, they're, they're on the doorstep of death. But it seems there's part of the congregation, and some of them will be referred to later in the letter, there's part of this congregation that's not fully dead yet. And the Lord says, tend to that. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. You know those times in the summer you leave on vacation for a week, you drive back up your driveway when you're home and you look over at your flowers around your house and you say, those babies are dead. Every time I do that, Erica goes, no, they're not dead. They just need water. I'm like, girl, you're crazy. That daisy is deady. I've actually never said that, but... She's like, no, watch this, watch this. And sure enough, a couple days later, I'll be driving up the same driveway, look over, beautiful, bright, upright. I'm like, how oh, resurrection flowers? No way. <laughs> She's like, no, they just need water. They just need tended. He says, Sardis, you know what you need to do? You need to tend to what isn't dead yet. You need to strengthen what remains. You need to pour spiritual water on the aspects that are still redemptive, still good. So wake up and strengthen what remains. Well, how do we do that? How do we strengthen what remains and about to die? For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Verse 3, how do we strengthen what remains? Verse 3, what's the first word of verse 3? Remember. Remember then what you received and heard. Remember what you received and heard. Sardis, remember what laid at the foundation of this church when it was started. Remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember the fellowship of the believers. Remember the worship of Jesus that was to permeate every aspect of our life. Remember the radical generosity in which we were to pour out for one another. Remember the gospel that was to boldly be shared with those who don't yet know Christ. Remember. I'm convinced more and more, the older I get and the longer I pastor, that there really is something on a church level, level to that whole idea of keep it simple Silly. Church, just remember and just do the things, you know, God looks at us and he says, just do the things I say I'll bless in my, in my, in my word. Just preach the word. Just share the gospel. Just love the lost. Just truly fellowship together. And he looks at Sardis and he says, strengthen what remains. Well, Lord, how do we strengthen what remains? Remember what you were taught. Just remember. Just come back, back to basics. But it's not just a remembering for the sake of remembering. It's not just a remembering for the sake of, of calling back to mind. What's it say right after the word heard? Keep it. Keep it. 
Part of the spiritual CPR that Jesus is giving them is a call for them to remember the things that they were taught, a call for them to remember what they received and what they heard, but not just to remember it, to what? Come on! To keep it again and again in these letters and over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus is so adamant that his followers are not just hearers only, but doers, but doers. Right, we, we, we have to do our, our, our morning devotions with our spiritual Nikes laced up. We have to sit in church ready to go, okay, what, what is this calling us to? How does this come to bear on our week? How does this help me believe rightly? Or how does this help me live rightly? When, when we lose that mindset, then we just become a bunch of spiritual fatheads. It, it's to remember and to keep, remember and to keep, remember and to keep, here and do, here and do, here and do. We can't ever lose sight of that. And he, so he says, remember what you've received and heard, keep it. And then the very last, the fifth of these imperatives, very last, keep it and what? And repent. There it is again. How many times we've come across that word repent in these letters? The loving conviction of a perfect Lord who looks at a people that he loves in a state of spiritual life support and he says, turn away from your dead ways and follow me. Turn away from your dead ways and follow me. And how he looks down at us and he says, Turn away from your dead ways and follow me. And so he confronts them in their deadness, but he doesn't leave them there. He gives them the plan for spiritual CPR, and he says, wake up and strengthen and remember and keep and repent. But then, man, this is so, this is so weighty. What he has to say next, what what if, what if the church won't wake up? What if they don't want the spiritual CPR plan? What if they're good in their spiritual deadness? What if they're content on their spiritual life support? If you will not wake up, middle of verse 3, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Third thing, Jesus will come against the church that continues in its dead ways. Now again, this is a theme we've seen multiple times in these letters. And every week, we've talked about this this fullness of grace and this fullness of truth that is true of our Savior. This perfect love and perfect justice. And that we, we can't ever seek to drain either side of those out. That Jesus, he again, he could have looked at them in their spiritual deadness and said, forget you guys. And he didn't. He said, here's what you need to do. 
Here's how spiritual life will come again. Here's how, you're, here's how you will be revived, church at Sardis. But then the justice sides. But he says, if you will not do this, if you will not wake up, I will come against you. I don't want Jesus coming against me. And I don't want Jesus coming against our church. You with me? Oh God, help us to hear and heed what you're saying. Help us to never lose sight when you call us to wake up and to strengthen what remains and to remember what we've been taught and to keep it and to repent. God, please. Because we don't want him to come against us. Now, the letter begins and Jesus, he confronts their spiritual deadness. And then he gives them a plan of spiritual CPR, and he warns them, here's what'll happen if you don't heed that plan. Now, now get your eyes up, get your eyes vertical, and look what he says here in verse four. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will, what does it say? They will what? They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers, there's that statement again. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So he looks and he says, uh, there's still a few though. And the way he describes this faithful few is that they have not soiled their garments. But he doesn't just describe it in the negative. He says, they walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And then he, he, he uses these faithful few to speak to this bigger picture of what is true of the conquerors. Every one of these letters has ended with this call to the conquerors, this hope held out to the conquerors in Christ. And as he describes the conquerors, he notes a few, few things. He notes what the conquerors will be clothed in. He notes the book that their names will be written in. And he notes something that he himself is doing on their behalf. So fourth thing, write it down and then let's explain it. The one who conquers will walk in victor's robes with their name in the book of life. The one who conquers will walk in victor's robes with their name in the book of life. Now, let's, let's unpack this. Hey, are you ready to worship, right? Are you ready to worship through this? Come on, come on. You with me still? You with me? This is good stuff. What God says here should infuse the believer with hope. Should move the Jesus follower to worship. What is true of those who are conquerors in Christ? It first says they will be clothed thus in white garments. Now, you know, in, in some of you who are more bold, you'll shout it out. When you first read that, what do you think of white garments? Like, what do you think that's getting at? 
Purity, yeah, that's kind of the first word that comes to mind. And that, that's certainly there for sure because he's juxtaposing that. He's setting it against the reference he made earlier of those who had soiled their garments. And so there's this, there's this statement of the purifying work of Jesus in the life of the conqueror. They will, they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The, the, the conquering power, the victorious power of Jesus to, 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 uh, that we're no longer robed in our rags but we're robed in his righteousness. But for the hearers at Sardis, it was more than purity. The hearers at Sardis would have understood that in their day, in their context, when did you wear white? You wore white after your army just defeated another army. And as your army came back into your city, people were clothed in white as a matter of celebration. And so uh, the, the robing in white is not only a matter of purity, but it's a matter of victory. And, and it's in line with the context here that Jesus keeps bringing up this theme of conquering. You will be the ultimate conquerors. You will walk with me in purity and victory. Who, who are the ones, though, that walk with Jesus in purity and victory? It's the ones whose name are written in the book of life. It's the ones who know him by faith. And I want you to see both the negative and the positive of how Jesus talks about this. He says, to these walking with me, clothed in the clothes of victory and purity, he says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. But he doesn't, once again, just explain it in the negative. Not only will he never blot his name out of the book of life, come on now, this is so good. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The advocating role of the perfect savior on behalf of broken sinners. I will confess your name before my father and before his angels. This brings us back to a right understanding of the gospel. We will never, hear me, we will never be worthy to stroll into the presence of God dressed in white in our own merit. We will never be worthy to stroll in in the robes of purity and victory in our own merit. I don't care how many times a teacher patted on your head and said, you're a good boy. It ain't gonna happen. The only way we enter the presence of a holy God dressed in the robes of victory and, pur and purity is in the stead of the pure, victorious Savior who goes before us and who says, there with me. That's, that's it. Look at me now. Those of you in the room rebelling against God by being very bad. You don't need a preacher up here to tell you. You're a sinner. You're like, I know that. I know that. You know what you might need a preacher up here to tell you today? today? You're a sinner and there's great hope because the preacher preaching to you is a sinner with great hope. And the people sitting by you, 
they're sinners with great hope. And their hope is in the fact that God loved the world, that he gave his only son, who came into this world, and who lived it completely, whole time, with spotless garments. He lived the pure life you and I couldn't live. He really lived a sinless life, and then he really died the death for sin, for your sin and for my sin. And then he was really laid in a tomb, and then he really rose from the dead three days later. He really did. He really did. I would challenge you, if you don't believe it, I've done it. Go read all the best you know, Christian critics out there and historians out there and see what they do with the resurrection. It's academic puniness. They don't know what to do with it. Why? Because he rose. And then he appeared to his followers. He really did. Thomas is like, I don't buy it. And he's like, yeah, stick your, stick your hand in my finger, dude. Not my finger, but my hand. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he's advocating on behalf of the saints. And we come up with some other gospel where we're like, being a Christian means I gotta be really good. That's dumb. So those of you rebelling against God by being very bad, there's hope. If today you will believe. If today you will drop to your knees and say, thank you, Lord. Thanks for being willing to save even me. And if you're in the room today and you're rebelling against God by being very good, where you really have believed this lie from the pit of hell, that being a Christian just means you were a pretty good person before Jesus and now you have Jesus, you're just pretty good, even better. It's a lie from Satan. You are dead. And if you've never surrendered to the gospel, you still are dead. And it doesn't matter how many times someone gives you a word for your moral uprightness, you're still dead. And it's just as miraculous when God opens the eyes of someone who's lived a more, like the morally upright in so many ways, like it's a miracle of God when he opens their eyes and they see their sin for the first time and they hit their knees and say, thank you, Jesus, for being the pure one that I can never be, but I've tried so hard to be. So whether you're rebelling against God through your moral depravity or whether you're rebelling against God from your moral depravity that takes the form of trying to be morally upright. Your answer today is to hit your knees and surrender your life to Jesus, the only one powerful enough to catch and to keep the purity and the victory that you're ultimately looking for. So today, those of you who don't know Jesus, will you hit your knees and believe that reality? 
you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That God loved you so much he sent his only son. That you can't do anything to be good enough to earn your way to him. But that he invites you to himself today if you will believe. May the Holy Spirit grant you belief.